0: Uh, Let me just do a a brief review last week just to pick up so you know. If you're new or visiting, we're on a series on hope. And uh, never has hope been more critical. Never has it been more needed uh, than right now. And so we're talking about the importance of hope because often we talk about faith or love or belief or all those other qualities, but we don't realize they're all anchored in hope. If you don't have hope, you really don't have anything to anchor your faith to. Because faith does not exist by itself; it is anchored to someone. Right? You have faith in something. So, for example, if you had faith in the Cougars or the Huskies this weekend, you have lost hope. All right. <laughs> Those that are here praying for the Seahawks, you're coming, hoping that God will see you in church and bless the Seahawks. All right. You may have hope. It may last. It may not. All right. But when we're talking about hope in Jesus Christ, we are talking about the anchor of the universe. That anchor has never moved. It's never going to move. And we're talking about we need to be re-anchored into that hope. So we looked at this passage in Colossians. And the idea here was the whole idea of holding firm. And I I think with what we just experienced in Marysville, it it underlines it and underscores it, that we not shift from the hope of the gospel. In Colossians 1 it says this, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. That means Jesus' death on the cross for our sins in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You meditate on that for a minute. That you could stand in front of God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, if you just look at your sin list, does that seem possible? If you're going to try and stand in front of Him on your own good works, you're in deep weeds. But if you're going to come under the protection offered by Him and the cleansing that comes by Him, you are actually able to stand there Look Jesus in the eye, and you will be holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is a fantastic promise. Almost too much for us to believe. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The reason he talks about not shifting and why he's writing that letter is because there were others throwing things at the Colossian church that, in Colossae that was throwing them sideways, and he was arguing for them to not shift. Stay firm, stay locked in. What this is talking about, what Scripture calls this here in this passage, is steadfastness. And it means exactly what it sounds like, steadfast, you don't move, you stand fast, anchored. This theme of being anchored or steadfast is especially uh, tied to the theme of hope. And so if you look up hope, you will find all the admonitions uh, in hope are tied to that, this idea of being anchored or steadfast. The idea here is you have to keep your eyes on Jesus no matter what. Even if it's hard. Might I add, especially if it's hard. You keep your eyes on Jesus no matter what. Jesus promises to keep us anchored in his hope. And when I say that this morning, and I'm talking to a large group, um, I don't know who out there this morning is on the verge of losing hope. Who's wavering or shaky or or barely hanging on? But I know this, I know you're out there. I know there's those who are barely hanging on by a fingernail, wondering why God brought them to this place, or how could have God brought them to this place, or if this is idea of fun, I'm out of here. Can I pray for you this morning? Let's pray again. Father, I don't know who I'm looking at. I don't know who I'm talking to. This was uh, I added this piece this morning. It was heavy on my heart. And somehow I think you're tagging something. So I want to stop and pray and ask that you would zero in on your sons and daughters, those who are doing well, those who are locked in. Uh, smile and uh, pat them on the shoulder. Bless them. But the ones who are fragile, the ones who are the smoldering wicks or the, the bruised reed, Lord, they need a special encouragement this morning and I ask that you would come alongside them, not just would they hear the message, but would they sense your presence encouraging them deeply to re-anchor in the hope that is you and to not waver from it. And we know the devil is a liar, he's a thief, he's a stealer, he's a marauder, he's a destroyer, he's a murderer. He tries to steal and kill our hope in you. And Lord, may you circumvent that today and, and end round it, and may you come alongside in a life-giving way uh, that when we put our faith in you, Lord, we find strength in you as we sang this morning. I'll give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So if that's you, know the Lord was thinking about you because I added that piece this morning because it was impressed on me to do so. So let's look at this idea of the anchor for your soul. All right. This is a very famous passage in Hebrews. It's a great passage. I love rumbling through Hebrews. Just read through it again. By the way, if you're reading through the Bible and you're a little bit behind, take faith. Just pick it back up. Go. You still got two months. I'm in. uh, I just finished second Peter. So I'm rolling first John and off we go to Revelation and we'll be done again. All right. But uh, just pick it back up. Keep reading and, and the Lord will bless you in it. In Hebrews 6, it says this, God did this, and he's talking about the covenant that he made with Abraham, that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Let's underline that again. Why should we not lie? We should not lie. Why? Because God doesn't lie. God, The language of heaven is truth. The language of hell is lies. Always keep that in mind. When you hear those voices in your head, just ask yourself... The, Is that from God or is that from the enemy? Is that truth or is that a lie? And if you suspect it's not from God, if you know it's three quarters of a truth with a hook, reject that thought. You do not have to play with it because it's intended to hook you and don't play with it. It's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope, and here's the phrase, as an anchor for our soul. The idea there is it locks us in, it locks us down. We can't be towed off. We can't be set adrift. It's an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And what that's talking about is in the temple there were two courts, the the holies and then the holy of holies. And in the holies, a lot of stuff went on, a lot of people could rumble around, but in the holy of holies, only the high priest could go, and then only once a year, and then only with blood. And if he did it wrong, the legend is he would have a rope tied to his ankle, because if he did it wrong, and messed up and died, they could pull him out. All right? It was that kind of serious. Right? And... And what it's saying is Jesus entered behind that veil. He was the one who was able to go in there. And what that is talking about is he goes into the inner sanctuary of our hearts as well. You know how we veil, right? We got an outer court and we let everybody else see our outer court. It says here, Jesus walks through the inner court of your heart. He walks in and says, I'm going to be the anchor for you. So when you dig into this a little bit, It says, notice there, it says, God did this, that, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What are the two things that we're talking here? And we're distilling this down. You'd have to read Genesis and the story of Abraham and you'd have to read all of Hebrews, but let me just give you the nugget and you can go look for yourselves later. But when he was talking to Abraham, the two unchangeable things that he did for Abraham is number one, God is the giver of the promise. And number two, God is the guarantor of the promise. Okay? Those are the two unchangeable things. Number one, God said, I promise you. And then number two, he says, I guarantee it. Kind of like Les Schwab. All right? Come on, that was funny. You guys. (laughs) Gee whiz. My best stuff clunk. All right. If you look in the Expositor's Bible commentary, uh, they say this is very important because God swore an oath. And when we look at it, you'll understand why. It says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, if you just look in Hebrews up a little bit, it says he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now there's, there's the catch, isn't it? Patiently waited. Don't you love that phrase? Yeah, that's that thing called patience, waiting for God's will. And our question is, oh, well, how long do I have to wait? Right. And in this, what they're saying is that, you know, the question is, why did Abraham have to patiently wait? Because the answer is God had no intention of immediately filling it. And because he knew he had no intention of immediately filling it, he said, I make you a promise and I guarantee it. And therefore, abraham it says of Abraham, he believed on God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Now, he still had to wait. Just because he believed didn't mean he, d- he didn't have to wait. He still had to wait. He had to wait 25 years before God fulfilled what he was going to fulfill. Uh, if he, God was going to do it instantly, he wouldn't have had to make made an oath. He would have just said, hey, here's your son. You're happy, right? But Abraham had to wait. And thus it says, from the first, Abraham... This is out of the Expositor's Bible, Commentary. I want to give him credit for it. Thus it says, from the first, Abraham was faced with the prospect of waiting in hope and faith. It goes on to say that Abraham is the supreme example of one who continued to trust God and obey him even though the circumstances were adverse and gave little support to faith. Now we can read that stuff when we walk through it and we go, oh yeah, well it's fine, but we all know Abraham was going to do it right anyways. So that's how it works in the Bible. But put yourself back in its his condition again and look at the age of Abraham and look at the age of Sarah and you start to realize it was long gone and gone for good. All right. That their bodies were no more in shape to make a baby than the man on the moon. It was overdone dust. All right? And yet it says he believed the promise that God gave. And here's the great part for us. Did Abraham do that perfectly? Did Sarah do it perfectly? No. Right? There's this uh, problem of Ishmael showing up. But I think what's incredibly encouraging is that they didn't waver in the, what it's talking about here. And that it, they went on, and thus, uh, confident of God's promise, he, Abraham, waited for what he's going to promise. Have, have you ever had to wait? Have you ever noticed that God's timing and your timing are a little different? You ever been frustrated with that? I, I've said many times, it's really not God's will I've struggled with so much, but his timing kills me. Okay, single tells, 38. That's one. Okay, this is real patience here. We have to exercise real patience. Abraham had to exercise real patience. And I think it illustrates something that's important for us. You know, often we're hungry for a new word from the Lord, right? Boy, if I just heard from the Lord again, or if He just gave me a word and I could know what I was going to do, I would do that. But often, if you think about it, He's already given you a word. He's talked to you many times. He's given you promises. He's told you things. If you go back and you think through your history, He has told you things that you have to uh, do or given you promises that He said He will fulfill. And our quibbling with Him at this point isn't so much that He made the promise. Our quibbling with Him is why are you dragging your feet and taking so dadgum blasted long to fulfill it are you really a good dad? A good dad wouldn't wait that long because you would know the kind of misery I'm in and you'd fix it now. Now, we wouldn't say that publicly. We'd never say that. But we think that in our heart and spirit, right? And we certainly wouldn't let other believers know because then we look like a pagan and we go, oh, you know. So we we don't do that, but we do that. All right? we We do that. And so as we are wrestling with that, we often, I need something new, I need something more. When in reality, He's given us all the word we need. You read through Scripture, if you're in a relationship with Christ, He's given you all the word you need. He loves you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to fulfill your needs. He's going to fulfill His promises. He's going to come back and get you. What else do we need? But we want more because we want to get out of our circumstances. I'll bet you that was true of Abraham. I'll bet you Abraham wanted to get out of his circumstances many times. And it doesn't seem like God was any more interested in answering Abraham than he does us. Here's the thing. Have you ever tried to manipulate God that way? How well does it work? doesn't, does it? So we should quit doing it. And anchor in the promises that he gave us. It says, He has promised on oath that he will come back for us. Right? Is that true? Promises he'll be with us all our lives. Promises he'll never leave or forsake us. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints in light and has delivered us from the domain of his darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Here's what this means. Abraham was given a promise And it was a promise of hope, the promise that there would be an heir. Not just of a son, but an heir. One, the coming one, would come from the line of Abraham. And he anchored in that hope even as he had to go about life. And if you read Abraham's story, sometimes a very tumultuous life. Uh, He went into a war, he was outnumbered five kings to one. Not good odds. Right? Do you ever feel overwhelmed? And the enemy is so much greater than you. How could it ever possibly win? But he always kept to the promise. He always kept the promise in view and stayed anchored in the hope of it. He went through life with his eye on that hope as he went through life. That's what I'm trying to say. He went through life with his eye on hope as he went through life. Life wasn't any neater, any uh, cleaner for Abraham than it is for us. Is your life messy? It is, isn't it? Oh, you're looking saintly right now. But it's messy. Are your thoughts messy? Right? Sure. But you have to keep your eye on him as you're going through life. You don't get out of life to keep your eye on him. You keep your eye on him as you're going through life. And so the idea, gee, if my life was just nice and perfect and clean and neat and and tidy, then I could keep my eye on Jesus. We've totally missed the boat. That isn't why he gave us hope. He gave us hope as you go through life. That is a category called the fall. You've got to have a category for the fall. And Millersville illustrates that all too sadly. There's a wickedness, there's a force, there's a brokenness among us that is hard to fathom. And you keep your eye on Him in the midst of that. He doesn't take you out of that to do that. The writers of Hebrews is using um, Abraham as an illustration because Abraham, like I said, we don't go through life any differently than anybody else does. We just go through life with a different hope than anybody else has. Did you hear what I said? We don't go through life any differently than anybody else has. Because you're a believer in Jesus doesn't mean you have a charmed life and everything goes well. Sometimes it goes worse. We don't go through any different than anybody else does, but we go through life with a different hope than anybody else has. There is someone walking with me. There's someone watching. There's somebody observing. There's somebody my response matters to. And in that hope, I can walk through these difficulties. Abraham's an illustration of how we're supposed to hang on to the hope that we have and not let go of it, even if things are difficult. The Hebrew church uh, had suffered. Uh, That's why Paul was writing this to them. They had suffered and now they were going through round two. All right, so... They had endured a a season of persecution, it had gotten okay, and now persecution had kicked up again. They had weathered the first persecution pretty well, but the second one they were losing gas and, and fading. And so they were starting to get shaky and their grip on hope was slipping. And the writer asked them to recall the former days when they faced... Hard, a hard struggle with sufferings. NIV says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. A great contest in the face of suffering. All right. And this brings us to our main point today. I did all that just to get to this. <laughs> now, here's the thing. All right, Let me be really honest. I think you know. It. It's not a popular point. This is not something you hear talked about often in pulpits today. It's not, it's definitely not seeker-friendly. Okay, um, This is not um, a popular theme. And yet, if you look at the New Testament, it's one of the main currents through all of Scripture. As you study hope, if you go and take a concordance and just look up all the verses on hope, and look where they are and look where they're attached to, what you're going to find is, is all of the promises of hope are wrapped around this theme. Okay? Every single one of them. What am I talking about? And the, What I'm talking about is the idea that hope is tied to affliction and suffering. That all the passages in the New Testament are tied when you look hope, or, except the ones that say, well, I hope to see you soon. All right, take those out. But all the ones that talk about hope in Christ are being anchored, or all that stuff, it's all tied around this theme of, affliction and suffering hope walks with and through suffering and affliction it doesn't bypass it remember in psalm 23 what does it say yea though i walk through the king james here yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death what i will fear no evil does it say that god pulls you out of the shadow of the valley of death no it says as i walk through the valley of the shadow of death folks life on this planet is the shadow of death and hope does not pull us out of it. Hope walks with us through it. That's what if you get one point from me, it walks with you as you go through your trough. It walks with you as you go through your difficulties. It walks with you as you suffer. It walks with you as you have affliction. And that is what you take great joy in. Not that you're going through suffering or affliction, that there's someone walking with you as you go through it. Uh, let's look at this. Um, look at Hebrews 10. If you've got your Bibles, uh, uh, look at Hebrews 10. And it says, it says this, uh, it Was starting with verse 32, if you're looking along. It says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were treated such. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. A word we'd understand better is the confiscation. They took your home. They took your cars. They took your stuff. right? It said that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's saying, hey, go back to when you first started in the Christian life. Remember what you went through. Remember what God did. Remember what took place. Remember how you faced that pressure Don't shift from that. Do the same thing again. Uh, Continuing, it says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Almost all the passages of hope are wrapped in and around and with suffering and affliction. This is not to say that uh, we pray for suffering and affliction, right? That, that, we're not going to say, hey, this Lord, would you make us miserable, Lord, and really suffer in affliction so that we could in, understand hope? No, that's not the idea, right? Um, but rather, we're encouraged to hang on to our hope in spite of suffering and affliction because the assumption in Scripture is that if we live in this life, we're going to experience it. Any of you not experienced suffering or affliction? Anybody here this morning could raise their hand and said, "Hey, it's been a piece, a cakewalk. I have glided through life." No. Not even a child can say that, right? All of us know what it's like. And notice in this passage it talks about the whole issue of shrinking back. I've watched for years, and it's astonishing to me, and I still don't have it figured out how an event will happen. And you watch that event and for some people it pushes them towards God and for other people it pushes them away. I have been absolutely mystified. Uh, simple little things that in my mind aren't even that big of a deal um, kick people in reverse and they just walk backwards from Jesus and away from them. And huge catastrophe things, catastrophic kind of things and I watch somebody lean in and I'm like, wow, what makes the difference? But... The thought or the principle here is this. When we face suffering or affliction, we have to learn the skill to lean into faith and, lean, be, and, and faith then leans into hope. We have to lean towards God, not away from Him. Uh, you maybe can think of times in your life right now when you should have leaned in and you leaned away. And you can probably think of times when you were threatened or tempted to lean away and you leaned in. You actually surprised yourself. Wow, how did I do that? Right. This whole idea, as life gets tough, we have to learn how to lean in. Now, here's my take on this. We've had it pretty good in America. I would say uh, anybody uh, my age has lived an absolutely charmed life in our country. I was born in 1956, and from 56 to now has been, I consider, the greatest period, in the history of the world. And living in America is the greatest country in the history of the world, in the greatest era of the greatest country in the history of the world. We rocked it. It was awesome. And it's all falling apart right now. And it's going to get hard. And we're going to have to learn how to lean in. And we're going to have to learn how to not lean away, how to not shrink back. Because God wants us to put our hope in Him Let me ask you a question. Do you believe what I just told you is true? Or are those just preacher words? Pastor words? If you're facing suffering and affliction, then lean in. Don't shrink back. Let me show you real quickly. I'm not sure we're going to even get through all of this, but I'm going to show you a couple examples of this in in the New Testament. Look at 1 Thessalonians. Go to the book of Thessalonians, chapter 1. Let me move forward here. There we go. Thessalonian Church, listen to this passage. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and then look at the last one. And your steadfastness of hope. Paul says we watched three things. We watched your faith. We watched your labor of love because you love Christ. But we also watched your steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction for the joy of the holy uh, affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that you need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, let me put the Thessalonian church in context for you, from Paul's perspective. All right? Because often, if you miss that perspective, you really, those sound like nice flowery words. Oh, that's cute. Nice of Paul to pen that. Very poetic. Um, look at um, a, a couple uh, statements here. Uh, first one is go back and it says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And then he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He said, you watched us. You heard what I told you. You heard about our story. Well, what was the story that he told them? What affliction was Paul talking about? Well, when he went to Thessalonica, if you read in the book of Acts, uh, when they came there, they started preaching uh, the gospel, and then a riot broke out. And this wasn't a little riot. They grabbed a whole bunch of people, and they turn, it says they turned the city upside down. A riot broke out. We've seen riots in Seattle. We know what they look like. And that's what happened there. And they broke out, and a roar went through the city. And they were trying to kill Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so they got them out of town, but the believers who stayed caught the brunt of it. And Paul says, you remember what, what happened. Uh, literally, they escaped town with their lives, right? Right? Just by the hair of their chinny chin chin. I remember, just before this incident, what happened before Thessalonica? Paul and Silas were where? In Philippi, and what happened in Philippi? They were beaten with rods. Now, uh, we don't get that today. We don't understand what, it is, but it, most of us know what a doll is, right? And if you go to Home Depot or you go to Lowe's or any of those kind, they have dowels and they're one to one and a half thick and you can get them about six feet high. That's what they had, only they were hardened wood like we would understand hickory, like an axe handle. And they would take those rods and they would whoop you with them. And it wasn't just one hated that sting, okay, you'll be better now. They beat you to a pulp with those things. So it says Paul and Silas were sitting in prison, beaten to a pulp, and what were they doing? Singing songs of praise. How do you do that? You only do that if you have an undeniable hope that has nothing to do with your circumstances, can see above your circumstances, and lifts you to a different place because you go, you know what, this is not good what's happening to me. But it doesn't take my eyes off of Jesus. And so they were singing, and we know the result of that story. The Philippian jailer and his entire family came to Christ, plus probably uh, many more. But what happened just before that? Paul was in Lystra. They did some miracles. It turned out really good till it went bad. And then it says they stoned Paul, drug him out of town, threw him on a pile because they thought he was dead. So before Thessalonica and the riot... There was the beating with the rods, and before the rods, there was the stoning to the dead. Can you imagine Paul walking into town and saying, Hey, I'm an apostle, you should listen to me, I have great words of salvation for you. And he looked like the walk of the living dead. I mean, when they stoned you, you know what they aim for? They aim for your head. Sure, some rocks and stuff hit your chest and stuff, but you and I both know that can hurt badly, maybe break a rib or two, but it's not going to kill you. It's the shots to the head that take you out. The rocks hit, knock your teeth out, they bust your lips, they break your nose, they punch your eye, they gouge your, I mean, your, your skull, they crack it open. So when they threw him on that pile and they thought he was dead, more than likely he probably was. And God rose him up and he got back up and he walked into town, but he sure didn't look like Prince Charming. He says, look, you know how I came to you. He said, how crippled and busted up I was, and yet you treated me as if I was the voice of God. So Paul gets stoned in Lystra. He gets pummeled with rods in Philippi. He comes to the Thessalonica and a riot breaks out. And he says this, You know what kind of men we were among you. You watched us. You saw. You saw the price tag. You saw what it took. And then he said, And like that you became imitators of us. What does that mean? When they saw pressure come, they knew how to handle it. How did they know how to handle it? Because they had watched Paul. Paul. They had watched Paul. They knew how to keep their hope on Jesus. Paul was very good at doing that. Let's talk about suffering for a moment. If you go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I I know I'm throwing a lot of Scripture at you, but you're college-educated, so you can handle it. All right? Second Corinthians, you read this list, read this list once. Paul's talking about what it cost him. Jesus told him when he got saved, remember Ananias? And Ananias said, Lord, this man has killed many of your people. He's persecuted the church. And God said, he is my chosen servant, and I'm going to teach him what it is to suffer for my gospel. Paul writes this list. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. That's 39. For those of you who are mathematicians, that's 195 lashes. Five whippings. Right? Now, they weren't simultaneous, so he'd get whipped in one place, he'd go, he'd heal up. You ever have a place where you got a scar or a cut and then it got re-ripped open? How'd that feel? Can you imagine your back being filleted open and then it starts to heal and several months later it gets filleted open again? And what would that look like if that happened five times, you ever thought physically what Paul looked like? He was not a beautiful human being. He was one mass of welts and scars and bruises and wounds walking around. Matter of fact, how he kept going, I have no idea. It says, Five times I received 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods. So Philippi's one of them. There were two other times that he got beaten with rods to within an inch of his life. He says, once I was stoned, that's Lystra. We just talked about it. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, flooded rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people. He's talking about the Jews and how they were constantly hounding him and trying to kill him. They chased him all across the Mediterranean, the known world, trying to kill Paul. You can imagine the pressure and anxiety that came with that. Danger from the Gentiles. They weren't exactly friendly all the time. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. He had to contend with those who were giving a different gospel. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. Those of us in the Northwest know how that can happen. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the other churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? When he says, so you know what kind of men we prove to be among you, he's saying our witness was self-evident. And then he says, and you became imitators of, and Lord, you received the word. How did they receive the word? In much affliction. It wasn't easy. It was very difficult. They received it in a bunch of affliction, but he says with the joy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus who became an example to all believers. You know in 2 Corinthians, Paul most uh, theologians believe Paul was clinically depressed. Those of you who suffer with depression, you got a fellow traveler. Paul knew what it was like to fight that. Then can you imagine the weight of the anxiety of the churches? They were just little sparks hoping to keep them alive. And yet, there's nobody who wrote more about joy and there's nobody who wrote more about hope than Paul. He captured something, he saw something that I think is very, very important for us. We've run out of time this morning. We're going to continue this next week. But I want you to think about, if you think you've had it hard, and you probably have, but you have not had it like Paul, I don't know any of us who've been whipped for our faith. I don't know any of us who've beaten rods for our faith. Um, I know some of us who've been shipwrecked, but it was our own darn fault. all right. But I also don't know any of us who haven't suffered or who aren't facing affliction. And in that, the Bible says, hope walks with you through your affliction But like Abraham, you have to stay locked to the promises of God. God has promised you. He will see you. And if God has given you a promise, do not say in your heart, I guess that's not true anymore. You ever said that? Do not say that. Let me be your pastor. Knock that off. That is idolatry, that is disobedience, that is a lack of faith. You are shrinking back, and when you do that, God takes no pleasure in you. You ever have your mom or dad not happy with you? Okay, When you do that, God's not happy with you. Lean in. How would you have to lean into that this week? I don't know, but I know God knows. And I know He knows His conversation with you, and I know you know your conversation with Him. Where do you have to lean in to the hope that Jesus offers this week. Let's pray. Father, we uh, have a lot more to cover and it'll have to roll out next week. But uh, there's probably a nugget in here for everybody sitting in this room. And I don't know exactly where the nugget is, but I know this is a universal theme. I know this hits very close to where we live. I know a lot of us have anger towards You and woundedness because we don't think You've come through for us. I know a lot of us suffer with impatience. I know a lot of us wrestle with depression. I know a lot of us wrestle with our life circumstances and we're we're, um, stalled because our dreams, quote, unquote, have not come true. And Lord, too often we get hooked on our dreams or our legacy or our stuff instead of what You promised us. And we've got to turn that around. And so I want to ask this morning that you would help us lean in. I don't know where that point is, but I do know they're here. I can, sense, I can feel it in the room. I know. So Lord, I ask that that place you would show us as your children where to lean in and not to shrink back, where to re-engage with you in this issue of hope. And we ask that you would have a great week as our dad talking to us about that. I'm going give that to you in your name. Amen. You guys, go ahead and stand up with me as we sing this last song.